This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 112 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. The NIST cybersecurity framework has become a valuable tool for evaluating security across a variety of business sectors. Originally published in 2014 and targeting critical infrastructure, the framework continues to evolve to meet the changing needs of organizations in the U.S. and around the world. Its popularity stems from its combination of thoroughness, applicability, and approachability. Our guests today are Ken Durbin, Senior Strategist with Symantec Global Government Affairs, and Alan Liska, Senior Solutions Architect at Recorded Future. They're going to walk us through the NIST cybersecurity framework and help us understand how to make the most of it within our own organizations. Stay with us. It's great to have uh, both of you with me, Ken and Alan. I want to start, Ken, since our audience has uh, heard Alan a few times, I'd like to spend a couple minutes getting to know you first. Could you just uh, give us a little uh, overview of uh, what your career journey has been like? Absolutely. So I've been focused on the federal space for the majority of my career. Uh, It's been in different disciplines along the way, but ultimately over the last 10 years, I've landed on compliance and risk management issues, and more recently have uh, branched over into uh, the privacy arena. And uh, of course, uh, Alan, uh, we're familiar with you and the work you do at uh, Recorded Future. What's your official position there these days? I'm Senior Solutions Architect at Recorded Future. All right, terrific. Well, Ken, um, today we wanted to talk about uh, the cybersecurity frameworks um, and uh, why don't we just start off with some high-level stuff here? Can you, for those who might not be familiar with it, can you describe what are we talking about here? So the NIST cybersecurity framework was born out of an executive order uh, about six years ago, and it was designed to give critical infrastructure sectors a tool to analyze and improve their cybersecurity posture. Uh, the concern was is that they may not be as robust Uh, as needed to meet today's threats. So the executive order specifically spelled out that NIST has one year to do this, and they were to do it in collaboration with industry. And they had to do it in one year, and they they got it done. So what they produced is commonly called the uh, cybersecurity framework. Its official title is the Framework for Improving Critical Infrastructure Cybersecurity. Mm. <laughs> How so, governmental. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, another interesting uh, point while we're at it, uh, everybody refers to it as the NIST cybersecurity framework, except for NIST. They consider it to be industry's framework, and they were just the facilitators of it. Interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, that's kind uh, of uh, comfort, I guess, um, nicely humble of them, I guess. Well, it did acknowledge the the work that industry uh, put into helping with the development of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, additionally, it was meant for critical infrastructure, but because of its ease of use and effectiveness, it quickly made it popular with organizations of all shapes and sizes. So pretty successful effort from uh, from NIST and industry. Well, let's walk through what it's all about. Can you take us through the various elements? Sure. In a nutshell, it uh, helps an organization determine what their current cybersecurity capabilities are. And then you need to, using a 
risk assessment procedure determine if those capabilities are adequate for what your business or mission goals are. If they're not adequate, then the framework also helps you to decide what changes should be made to improve the cyber capabilities and then to monitor your progress along the way. It's a very simple framework. It's, there's only three key parts to it. There's the framework core, profile, and tiers. Um, and if you don't mind, I'd like, like to go through each one. Yeah, let's dig into them. Great. So the core, as its uh, name suggests, is at the heart of the framework. It's divided into uh, five main functions. They're called identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover. Each one of those is then further subdivided into categories and subcategories. And by the time you get to the subcategories, those five functions have now ballooned into 108 uh, subcategories. And it's those, it's the, the, the functions that help guide you through what your capabilities are. I mean, if you just think of the names of the functions alone, if you just talk about those names, it tells you a lot about your cybersecurity capabilities. First, identify what is it I'm trying to protect. Protect is what protections do I have in place to actually do that? Nothing is, is 100% successful, so you have to have the ability to detect when something makes it through. Once it's detected, do you have the ability to respond to it? And then ultimately, do you have the ability to recover and get back to normal business operations? So you can see just at that level, you can have a pretty meaningful conversation with somebody about their cybersecurity capabilities. Let's move on. Can you describe to us the profile? The profile, I like to refer to the profile as the way you interface with the core. So you start with subcategory number one, and you ask yourself, is this uh, outcome important to my business or mission needs? If it is, do I have something to address it? If I do, is it adequate? Then you ask yourself that question for all 108 subcategories. And at the end of it, we have what's known as a current profile or what my current cybersecurity capabilities are. Then you do a risk assessment against that, determine what changes need to be made, document those changes, and now you have your target profile, what it is I'm trying to achieve. The delta between those two becomes your roadmap from getting to point A to point B. So it's kind of at that, that's, that's how you interface with, with the core itself. And one of the things that uh, I really like about the framework is that it, it, it allows you as an organization to sort of um, set goals for yourself, uh, you know, and map them out in a clear way. We're here now, you know, we've had an honest assessment. This is where we are. These are the steps we need to take to get to this point. So it allows you to be aspirational in improving your security based on your goals and what you uh, what you hope to achieve. Hmm. Well, uh, Ken, let's move on and talk about the tiers then. Okay, the tiers sometimes are misunderstood. Uh, there are four tiers in the framework, uh, tier one through four, and they're defined as partial, risk-informed, repeatable, and tier number four is adaptive. It kind of helps an organization measure their overall capabilities in three areas. Um, their ability to follow a risk management process, uh, how integrated the risk management program is, and then what level of external 
participation are they engaged in? And as you go up the tiers, the, those abilities get more uh, robust. And people like to look at the tiers as a maturity curve, that if I'm a tier two, I have to get to a tier four. Uh, and that's not necessarily the case. They set them up as a way to give you a guide, uh, figure out where you are. If that's acceptable for your business or mission needs, that's fine. You don't need to go any further. Um, but if you do, then it helps you plan how, how to get there. They do say if you're a one, you should probably focus on getting to a two, but not everybody has to get to a four. Now, I'm curious, uh, Alan, as you've seen this adopted throughout the industry, um, it, it's, is, am I correct in, in uh, my assessment that it's been a, a very positive reception? Yeah, overall, and, and I think Ken hit on this uh, uh, perfectly, while this was originally intended for critical infrastructure, it's actually seen much wider adoption beyond that critical intended audience, simply because it's something that's easy, it's measurable, and it's repeatable across all industries. So there's nothing industry specific about it. And the goals and the guidelines are broad enough that you don't have to worry about having specific equipment or specific types of security or specific level of staff in order to be able to uh, meet uh, the, the goals that are outlined here. Yeah, it's interesting to me that I, I suppose you know, even if you're not under any sort of uh, uh, regulatory uh, requirements, that uh, just going through this as an exercise with the approachability that it seems to have, well, it's going to be time well spent. Sure. I mean, if you go to the board, uh, your board of directors and the board says, what's our security posture, which is something that's being asked more and more often, this gives you sort of a quantitative way of analyzing where you stand um, as far as your security readiness compared to where you could be and, and then be able to justify, you know, as Ken said, you don't necessarily need to be able to jump to a tier three or tier four, but you can at least then explain, okay, here we meet all these requirements for a tier two, and this is good enough based on our risk profile for these reasons. Now, Ken, uh, from a practical point of view, does this allow people to sort of uh, set a level to compare themselves with other organizations? That is actually one of the goals that gets missed uh, quite a bit from the cybersecurity framework itself. It's it's a, a, a way to compare apples to apples. So you, met, you mentioned a regulatory um, situation before. So if you have somebody that um, is with the government and they use... Um, uh, the risk management framework and they use FISMA and you want to talk to somebody, um, let's say the um, power utilities uh, and they're using the NERC FERC uh, controls, it's difficult to have a conversation. Uh, but since both of those uh, regulatory frameworks map into the cybersecurity framework, if they both do that, now they have a, a, a common language where they can sit and have conversations about, well, what are you seeing in this area? How are you improving this area? So it, it helps create that that level of conversation. Yeah, I'm curious too. I mean, can people come at it from the other direction? I'm thinking, for example, could a you know could an insurance company who is looking to uh, evaluate how well a company is doing uh, in, in the effort to um, to provide them with cyber insurance, could they look at this and say, well, well, how are you doing relative to the NIST framework? 
Yes, the insurance companies were looking at this since its adoption. Every every now and then, you, you hear more activity about the insurance companies using this as a way to baseline for uh, cyber insurance. It kind of ebbs and flows, but uh, absolutely, that has been a focus. But how can we? Let's use this as a baseline to see what your your capabilities are, and then that helps uh, set the rates based upon how prepared they are to to handle a cyber event. Well, let's talk about how uh, it is related to threat intelligence. Uh, are there uh, areas where threat intelligence comes up within the framework? That's why I was excited about this podcast, because it does give us an opportunity to address where threat intel plays. Uh, because if you look at the way the framework is written, uh, and you do uh, just a word search on the PDF document, uh, you find that threat intelligence only comes up twice. It comes up in the description of one of those uh, subcategories that we talked about, it's a subcategory under identify risk assessment. And then it's also mentioned when you get to tiers. So the, each of those tiers I told you was broken up into three parts. One of them is, is external participation. Well, threat intelligence is a, is a measure of your external participation. Now, that's not to say that the framework is saying that threat intelligence isn't needed. It's just not spelled out as well. It's almost, um, it's implied, but it's not expressly stated. This is where threat intelligence is going to help you within these certain uh, functions and categories and subcategories. Hmm. And so, I mean, reading between the lines, then where are the places that it fits in? So it, it fits in, in in multiple areas. Uh, first off, you know, we, we mentioned the, the the tiers. And so as you go up the tiers, your interaction with threat intelligence uh, gets more ingrained into your organization and, and their cybersecurity capabilities. So th there's that. But then if you look at the functions again and, and the names of the functions, if you look at protect, detect, and respond, you can almost ask yourself the following question, right, protect uh, against what? To answer the against what part, Threat intelligence helps you with that. Um, when you hear detect and you, you say, okay, de detect what? That also implies threat intelligence. And then with respond, respond how? Uh, that can lend itself towards uh, threat intelligence. Uh, and then there, there are specific examples within each one of those, those functions. Yeah, well, I want to dig into some of those, but before we do, Alan, I'm curious for your take. How do you approach uh, the framework from your position, uh, the work you do every day with threat intelligence? Well, and I think Ken kind of hit the, the nail on the head that while threat intelligence isn't called out, uh, except in a couple of places, really it permeates the entire flow of the cybersecurity framework and when we think of sort of a modern uh, a modern concept of what threat intelligence is where it's integrated into the workflow then that becomes part of the way the cybersecurity framework works so as you move up the tiers you're better integrating threat intelligence into your workflow threat intelligence is informing of what you do um, in, in a way that makes sense. So it's not just, here's some external information that's coming in. It's, okay, we're, we're, we, we're integrating this threat intelligence directly into whether it's our endpoint protection, whether it's our firewall, 
uh, whether it's our sim, by bringing all that in, it's helping you again, you know, not as much in, in tier one, but tier, tier two through tier four. And then going to that next level of okay, I'm participating in uh, my you know with my local ISAC, and I'm you know talking to other people in my industry and sharing information. Uh, you know, I'm publishing blog posts, whatever. All that information going back out to help keep the community informed. So now you come not just a, a user of threat intelligence, but a producer of threat intelligence that helps protect other organizations. Well, Ken, uh, let's dig into some of those examples. What can you share with us? Well, if we focus on the protect function, everybody is familiar with uh, antivirus programs, uh, endpoint protection. Uh, so that antivirus obviously is looking for a virus and for it to uh, be able to find it and identify it, it's looking for a signature. And that signature is threat intel. Or if you are trying to prevent your end users from communicating with bad IP addresses. So uh, uh, something that's known to be a botnet command and control server. You, in order to do that, you need to know what that bad IP is. Uh, and that's, of course, is threat intelligence. Right. And, and you know, it, it's whether you're talking about bad IPs, bad domains, or, you know, at, at a basic level, if you're talking about antivirus, which, you know, so a simple antivirus um, does a, sort of a hash match, right? It's this bad thing, it matches this bad thing, so I'm going to block it. But even more advanced, you know, the more advanced uh, endpoint capabilities, you know, like what Symantec does, you're not just matching on hash, you're matching on action. So all that becomes sort of a profile of what an attack looks like and being able to use that as a protect mechanism makes a lot of sense and it provides you know it it, it is a form of threat intelligence that's delivered directly to uh delivered directly to your users hmm. and how about with a detect component it would be a similar situation you you're you're asking yourself uh, what am i trying to detect and a lot of that is is based on on threat intel so you are going to have a need to inspect network traffic to detect uh, indicators of compromise or, or IOCs uh, or, or malware. And you want to do that uh, before it gets on, on premise. Uh, in order to, to fulfill that outcome, you, you need to have the threat intel in order to enable that to, to happen. Uh, same thing with uh, if you have encrypted traffic. Uh, you decrypt it, you need to be able to inspect that decrypted traffic, and you're looking for uh, indicators of compromise. That uh, is all based on threat intel. Right. And, and we see a lot of that, especially for you know more advanced clients that are starting to do things like inspect NetFlow um, or SSL detect. And, and so... Uh, you know, for example, there's there's a, a big demand right now for Yara rules. Yara rules are basically a form of threat intelligence that you can use to look at network traffic that's passing through, find matches against behaviors. So again, you, you know, stepping up away from indicators and more the entire action itself and putting, you know, rules in place to find things that may look legitimate on first glance, but then a deeper inspection shows you, no, this is something bad, right? You know, I mean, this is sort of the role of the hunter 
in, in, in your security operations center, or maybe your incident response team. Well, help me understand how it plays into the respond component, because um, at that point, something has already happened and you, you have detected it. So you've detected it. Now you have to respond to it. And a lot of the uh, goal of respond is to, to, to mitigate and prevent that event from getting out of hand, uh, or getting more severe. So an example there is you've detected what is going on in the, in the network that's bad, and you're able to define that as an IOC. And we'll say that um, you know, the, the, the network control point uh, detected the IOC, and now it can send it down to the endpoints and say, hey, keep an eye out for this uh, to prevent the event from, from spreading or, and getting out of hand. Um, or it could be as simple as you've had an event, you know that it uh, um, is a vulnerability that has a patch that's available, but you haven't deployed the patch yet. So based on its CVE, you can then tell your your asset management system to go and, and deploy this patch to take care of that known vulnerability. Or if you can't deploy a patch for whatever reason, that it you know you can put in place compensating controls, but you can take some sort of action because of the behavior that you know is coming. And is is there is it a factor of also getting intelligence on who might be responsible for this? I mean, I can imagine it being a, a different response if uh, you know if this is a nation state coming at me versus um, you know some kids trying to steal credit card numbers. Yeah, there's definitely a difference in that. But but even even then, even ignoring the difference between a nation state actor versus a cyber criminal, knowing in general the way the actor acts allows you to respond appropriately. So, for instance, if you know if if you see something that indicates that it's an actor that likes to use PS Exec to move around the network, now you know because of that intel you now know, okay, I need to look for instances of PS exec being used at either odd times or just in general used, depending on how often it's used in your network. So knowing that information, knowing what the actor is and knowing the information about the actor, knowing their TTPs, um, allows you to better respond in a way that is going to sort of reduce the amount of time. What we say is the reduce the dwell time working on the incident because I now have these five things I can go look for and I can, you know, take that information and go from across the net, you know, go across the network to look for it. And, and this also comes into play with automation. If I have a set of indicators that I've gotten in my SIM and I can push those indicators out directly to my endpoint or to a firewall for blocking or to something else, um, I, I can respond, I, you know, I can respond to these activities much faster and in a much cleaner manner. I'm curious, uh, Ken, from your point of view, uh, do you have any tips for folks on how to how to best use the framework? Maybe they're already engaged with it. Are, are there areas where you find um, you have advice for folks to to make better use of it? Uh, I do, and that's a, that's a great question. So the, the number one use case that we see for the framework is its ability to communicate about your cybersecurity posture. Again, because of the way it's structured with those five one-word descriptions for the core, identify, protect, detect, respond, and recover, uh, using that language 
really helps you to communicate to, we'll say, the board of directors or upper management uh, or even to your uh, rank and file employees to get them to understand their role in cybersecurity and in protecting the organization as a whole. Uh, the other thing we hear a lot is uh, I'm in a regulated environment. I'm already required to use XYZ. Why would I also use the cybersecurity framework? Which is a valid question. And uh, during the workshops that they had to develop the framework, this came up. It was like one of the last workshops. And there was a CISO from a power utility company. And he got up and he said, I've been skeptical of the framework this whole time because I'm regulated and I have to use it's either NERC or FERC. I am compliant. I'm always compliant. I've never been out of compliance. So why should I also use the framework? But he took the time and he mapped the NERC and FERC controls into the cybersecurity framework. And he realized that it wasn't a one-to-one. -one. There were more subcategories in the framework than there were in his regulated controls library. So it forced him to look, okay, well, what am I not doing? And he saw that there was some very basic cybersecurity uh, hygiene procedures, if you will, that he wasn't doing because he wasn't required to. So he implemented those. So now he's compliant and he's also improved his overall cybersecurity posture. So it's a, it's, it's a very powerful tool. People need to understand that we're, nobody's asking them to stop what they're doing and move to the cybersecurity framework. Quoting somebody from, uh, from, from NIST who once said, the framework works best when it works along with something else. And I think um, one of the points that we kind of have, have glossed over here, and that's only because Ken is too modest to brag about himself, is that Ken has been very, very closely involved in, in developing add-ons to this framework. So you know, they released the first version, They've, they've worked on additional versions because this is a dynamic document and, and Ken's really been a force for helping, um, you know, design and guide the framework in a way that's use for, useful for organizations. Well, thank you for that, Alan. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm an advocate for it and I do spend a lot of my time helping people understand its utility and, and how they can improve their situations using the framework. Well, Alan, what, what are your recommendations in terms of of how often an organization should revisit uh, the framework. It strikes me that this is not a you know exercise that you just do once and then you're good to go forevermore. Right. This isn't designed to be a checkbox framework that is okay. We've done this and now we're done until the next audit. Uh, you know, to me, this is something that organizations should be continuously looking at. Um, you know, as, as you're making budget decisions, as you're, you know, hiring and planning for the, you know, coming year, making sure that you're, you know, if you've achieved a level that you're happy with, making sure that you're going to remain in compliance with that. Um, or if you're looking to improve, if, if you've got areas where you want to focus, this can really help you decide, hey, these are areas where, Okay, maybe we could maybe we could improve in this area by adding multi-factor authentication or something along those lines. Within your organization, it should be a dynamic document that's always uh, that's always being changed and updated. Well, Kenneth, I'd like to give you uh, the last word here. Um, any any final uh, words of wisdom for folks? 
just first off, I appreciate the opportunity to have this discussion, and uh, it's always an honor to be in Alan Liska's uh, company. But the framework, the adoption rate is beyond what anybody expect, expected at the beginning. And that's a true testament to its ease of use and its effectiveness. Uh, so anything that we can do to help people understand uh, where the framework fits into what they're doing, how to improve their mission or business goals uh, is, is a good thing. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to be on the podcast. Our thanks to Symantec's Ken Durbin and Recorded Futures' Alan Liska for joining us. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Zane Picorni, executive producer Greg Barrett. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.